When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music-based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And without further ado... My name's Edward Rogers, how are you all? And I want to thank Tony for having me on his show. I'm a singer-songwriter. But first off, I'm a fan. I'm a total fan of music. Uh, I've been around... A long time and um he asked me just to give you some stories and i thought okay i'll give you some stories and and uh see what you think okay um i was born in birmingham one day my parents decided that we were moving to america didn't tell me but the next thing i know we're on a boat and we're here you know and it was kind of like the strangest place to be um this was right before the beatles broke so I'm here three months and all of a sudden the Beatles break and, and I'm the most popular kid in school. And I, you know, like, believe me, I ate it up because everybody thought I lived next door to Paul McCartney. It was great. My first kind of meeting a rock star was um, when I turned uh, 14, my mom came to me and she goes, starting tomorrow, you got a job. I'm like, what? <laughs> Thanks for letting me know. She goes, you're going to be a delivery boy at a, at a pharmacy. And I'm like, okay. So didn't even know what a pharmacy was, but I found out it was a drugstore that delivered, you know, and it was a very fancy area, Park Avenue between 36th Street and 40th Street in New York City. Very fancy. So off I go. I start to work. I'm there a couple of months and a prescription comes in to be delivered. And it's to a guy by the name of Chase Chandler. And I'm like, okay. And it's on 38th Street between uh, Park and Madison, like the most upper class area you could imagine. So I go to the, the delivery and um, ring the bell. Chase Chandler from the animals answers the door. And I'm like, freaking hell. You know, like, I can't believe I'm meeting a guy that used to be in the animals, you know. And so I give him his prescription and I'm, you know, I come back. I think he gave me a quarter or something as a tip at the time. And I'm like, the next day, the same thing happens again. There's a prescription, Chase Chandler. Well, you know, I ran up there this time. Well, here was my exposure to the, the world. As I ring the bell, and this Swedish lady answers the bell uh, door, and she's topless. 
And I'd never seen a topless Swedish girl. So you can imagine, like, I am totally flipped out. I'm like, damn, you know? So I'm like, I didn't tell the pharmacy guys again. Told all my friends at work, you know, and all my friends at school, but didn't tell the pharmacy guys. So, of course, everything happens in threes, okay? So the third occasion, I, of course, you know, now I'm running up there to, to hopefully the Swedish girl is there. I, I could care less about Chase. But the door opens up, and it's Jimi Hendrix in person, and he's dressed full kilt and I give him the prescription and I am speechless. I am totally like, this is like, oh my God, it's Jimi Hendrix. And I can't say a word, but I get back to the pharmacy and I couldn't contain what I just seen. I said, do you know who I just saw? And I like thinking, who did he see? You know, I said, Jimi Hendrix. They said, who? I said, Jimi Hendrix. He's the psychedelic God of rock and roll. You know, well, the pharmacist starts looking at the prescriptions and they were ordering every day between 500 and a thousand amphetamines. So they, they were getting ready to go on tour and they needed uppers for the tour. So they had stolen an illegal um, prescription pad and were putting in a prescription every day. So immediately the pharmacist person, you know, stopped dealing with them, pulls me aside, says, I don't want you to mention this to anybody. So that's, that's the end of the story, except for about years later, I'm out having a drink with Joey Ramone, and I tell him the story, and he turns around to me and he goes, you tried to bust Jimi Hendrix. You tried to bust, I'm like, I didn't try to bust Jimi Hendrix, and he wouldn't let up on it all night long, and I was just like, Joey, I'm just telling you the story, you know, because Joey, Joey, Joey was a huge, huge Jimi Hendrix fan, and one of his... I guess one of his last wishes was he wanted to promote a show at there's a, a small theater not very far from here at the Irving Plaza and he wanted to put together Slade to do Slade to have Slade do just one more performance and that was on his wish list of things he wanted to do when he passed away. The ironic thing is years and years later, um, I was invited to this dinner, and um, it was a book that was coming. It was sort of a book was coming out. And we were at this table with about six people. And one of them was Graham Nash. And Graham Nash was sitting there and he's talking about the book. And at one point he goes, you must be a musician or something. You know, he goes, let's talk music. And so we changed seats with whoever it is. And so he, we talk stories. And uh, I said, you know, I, the first time I saw you was at the Soupy Sales show. I said, you, you were the opening band for Soupy Sales, which was an American comedian. I said, and the Hullabaloo's were on the bill. I said, Shirley Ellis was on the bill. And I said, Little Richard. And the reason that I went was I was under age. But I said, um, my parent, my mom used to love Little Richard. And he was the, he was the uh, right under Soupy Sales. He was really the, the musical headline. And the guitarist in the band was Jimi Hendrix. And so the interesting thing is that Graham Nash said to me, I'm the one who found Jimi Hendrix. I'm the one who called Chase Chandler and said, get your butt down to Bleecker Street and see this guy perform. He goes, so I'm responsible for Jimi Hendrix. And I was like, I guess everybody's responsible for him in some way. I guess where I should move on to is, is um, you know, it's 50 years ago today, around about this time, that the slider was released by T-Rex, which in England... You guys were like totally over the top. You know, he was the new God over here. Honestly, he couldn't get arrested. Um, he really couldn't. I mean, he had difficulty uh, selling out any any 
place that he played. But the reason for that was that he uh, there was such promotion to get him made and break him over here. He did this show at Carnegie Hall and it was a really bad performance. And about six weeks later, uh, David Bowie and the Spiders from Mars played there. And the difference in the performance and the music ability and the charisma between the two was so evident. Mark seemed like he was after the teenage fans and David looked like he was after the Andy Warhol crowd and he got him. But anyway, um, so Slider comes and and Mark's actually got an album that's in the top 30 here, which is Slider. And he's playing a show at a theater called the Academy of Music, which is about 2000 capacity. And the other two bands on the bill were Argent, who at the time had Hold Your Head Up as a big hit, and a new band called the Doobie Brothers. So uh, there's your lineup. So, you know, so your headliner is, Mark, is T-Rex. You've got Argent and you've got the Doobie Brothers. So... That afternoon, I, I called a friend of mine and I said, uh, hey, you fancy going to see Argent? And he's like, yeah. I said, you know, Mark Boland's on. He might, he might have gotten better since the first time we saw him. So I went to buy tickets and they had first row upstairs. The entire upstairs was empty. Okay. So I bought the two tickets. And then I looked to the corner and there's all the BBC cameras and there's all these press people around him. And it's Mark Boland. And of course, because he's short, you can't see him. But he's all, and another gentleman was always dressed in his regalia. He was totally in his like best look, you know. And uh, so he's going on. This is this is the first of two nights sold out at Madison Square Garden. He goes, "Can you believe I'm in Madison Square Garden?" I'm thinking to myself, Madison Square Garden is like twenty thousand people. You're playing to probably a thousand people who half of them are there to see Rod Argent and, and Argent, and maybe a quarter of them are there because the Doobie Brothers were breaking at the time. So anyway, he comes after the interview. He comes walking by, and I stopped him, and I said, "Excuse me," and I, I was a very shy kid at that point. I said, "Excuse me, Mr. Boland." Um, this isn't Madison Square Garden. And he turns around to me, gives me that wink and that smile and goes, it's all showbiz, kid. And he just keeps on walking. <laughs> you know, being a fan, it was great having those opportunities to meet these people. And meeting them for just a split second just kept the fantasy growing. You know, and now, you know, there's a huge uh, American um, you know, love of Mark Boland. I mean, look, he got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and we've been, I've been very lucky because, um, about 20 years later, you know, like about, about 20 years ago, actually, uh, a friend of mine approached me and said, how, how about us doing a Mark Boland tribute in the middle of Central Park? <laughs> like, yeah, right. You know, who's going to come to this damn thing? And he goes, let me, let's, let's work on this. It'll be you and me. And I'm like, okay. So we ended up putting together this show called Mark in the Park. And we had uh, Tony Visconti playing bass. We had, um, we had Mark Klemberg playing drums, James Mastro from the Bongos, and basically any New York band you can think of. Um, and some of the performers that came out to do it, not charging us anything, was like Patti Smith, the guys from television, uh, Suzanne Vega, Vernon Reed, Lloyd Cole. You know, all these people turned up just to, just to pay homage to the guy. And it was just one of those magical evenings. And the show was called Under the Light of the Magical Moon. And it was one of the best nights in New York City that, for the entire summer. And I got into promoting shows because of that. 
Englishman in New York, Mr. Ed Rogers. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. With some great stories. There'll be more from Ed in weeks to come on Moments That Rock. Uh, Meanwhile, we'll be back after this. You're listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelidis, and I have to introduce this gent myself. It's Jim McCarty from the legendary Yardbirds with a story to tell. It's a good moment for me when um, I first heard R&B. I know it sounds a bit dull, but um, it wasn't to me, certainly. Um, and it was a moment with um, Paul Samuel Smith, who was the old uh, bass player with the band. And he um, went to school with me. And we were, we were at the same school in southwest London. And then after we left school, we, we um, didn't see each other for a while. And then I bumped into him in some local pub. And uh, he said, oh, um, you've got to come and hear this record you know this is uh, this is a great record and it was uh, Jimmy Reed live at the Carnegie Hall and I'd never heard anything quite like it you know it was, um, we'd been in rock bands before but this was different this was like um, real raw emotional music you know and uh, 
I thought this is you know, this is fantastic, and uh, this in a way is what got me into playing um, R&B. That would have been early sixties, probably maybe 62, 63, just before we started the band. Once the Yardbirds got going, we were the sort of local band, and we were building up a uh, a crowd. You know, came to see us because we, we followed the Stones into the Crawdaddy Club in uh, Richmond in Surrey and uh, we were creating a bit of a, a stir and, uh, for some reason it was um, we sort of took over really well nobody sort of chucked tomatoes at us or eggs or anything and said we want the Stones back the Stones just got too big to play in that little local club and we we got the gig it was a, a long story but we got the, uh, the gig every week to play there and um, Finally, we, we got to play with the Beatles uh, in their Christmas show that was in Hammersmith, which was quite near. And we were put on because we were the local band, and uh, they had a, a lot of you know other Liverpool bands on, sort of Brian Epstein managed bands. So we did our we did our set, and we it, it lasted about a week, and it was it was great fun, you know, because the Beatles were fun, and uh, they. Uh, of course, when they played, you know, you couldn't hear a thing. It was just screamed, completely screamed, and they used to piss about. So John Lennon and spastic people, are, you know, singing all the wrong lyrics. Um, yeah, and then one night we um, we were all in our dressing room, and there was a knock at the door, and in came Paul. You know, he, he had his, he had his guitar, and he said, "Oh, I just wanted to try a song out on you." So we said. Oh, Mm. Very honoured, you know. So he came and sat down, and he he, he played he, he played us this song that was that was it was great, but he didn't have any lyrics, and he called it Scrambled Egg, and it was a scrambled egg, da 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 da, da scrambled egg, which became yesterday. We were sitting there, sort of half laughing at the lyrics, you know, but at the same time, you know, what a tune, you know, and what you know what chords and. Uh, we were very honoured and lucky for, for him to have done that. We did a tour with the Rolling Stones and Ike and Tina Turner in, uh, in the UK and we were playing, we were playing um, different cinemas because the tours were cinemas in those days. And um, we used to play before the Stones and um, it was in this particular lineup was uh, Jeff and Jimmy which was, you know, absolute chaos most of the time. But now and then they hit the button, you know. And, and one night um, we played, I think it was in Cardiff for the gig, and they really, they really did rock, you know. They really, because they were trying to outdo each other, you know, all the time. They were doing solos in turn, you know. Sometimes they play at the same time. It was sort of chaos. But they, th this night they really did it, and uh, it was. It was fantastic, and you know when we finished, all the audience, yeah, blah, blah, blah. and of course the stones were waiting to go on. You know, we thought these were all standing up, sort of stuff. And it was about half an hour before they called. They finally called the, the crowd down, and the, and the stones went on. It's quite hairy sometimes because uh, you never knew what Jeff was going to do, and um, sometimes he. If he didn't like the sound on the amps, he would he'd kick the amp over or 
you know, if we, we were playing on the first floor one day in a little club somewhere in, in a very hot place, somewhere in Arizona or something, and there was a big window near the stage. <laughs> he didn't like the amp, and he kicked the amp right out the window. And the amp <laughs> went out the window the first floor, so if anyone had been under it, in his sort of rage, he, he was blind. You know. And many thanks to Jim McCarty, the drummer with the legendary Yardbirds, and a nice little story about Paul McCartney. Hi, I'm Rowetta. I'm known mainly for Happy Mondays and house music, um, but I'm just a singer from Manchester, and I write songs, and I love it. Um, I didn't start off as a singer. Um, I was told to be quiet most of the time, but I just fell in love with punk um, and started singing along to other kinds of records because I was more into punk than my vo- and my voice didn't really suit it. But um, yeah, just loved music, all kinds of music, but um, didn't start singing until I was about 15 seriously. Ended up singing with a, a group called Vanilla Soundcore and we did a gig at the boardwalk. I was spotted by um, a guy called Bruce Mitchell, who was the drummer from Jurassic Column. Um, who were on Factory Records, and he gave Elliot Rashman a call, who managed Simply Red, and he said, you need to sign this girl. Then got signed by Elliot, sang them stars, um, and just did little bits and just tried to get a publishing deal. So I went for a meeting with Virgin, went for a meeting with Warner Chapel on my own, and I signed with Warner Chapel and split with Elliot and went off and did my own thing. But I really wanted to join Happy Mondays. I just got home one night saw them on the TV and just thought I've got to join this band because I was a punk as a kid. It just made sense. And meanwhile, I was getting to know the people who did the artwork for the Mondays, the people who sold the tickets, everybody, the agents, everyone involved, I'd get to know, but I wasn't in the band and there was no room for a girl in the band, Nathan kept saying. It would be the start of something special because after that, a couple of weeks later, I joined the Mondays. And then um, two weeks later, um, I got a phone call and it was... um, a phone call from Nathan saying, Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne are in London and in Chiswick. Can you go down tomorrow and sing on the next Monday single? I went, are you taking the piss? And we did step on and everybody knew there was something magical about this. And I just did layers and layers and layers of vocals. And um, it sounded great. And you know when you just know. But you could tell knew that there's something special happened in the studio that day uh, doing step on. And when they played it back. Just everyone was dancing about. It meant they were going to go mainstream. It meant doing massive gigs of big uh, poster boys because they just didn't look the part. But we had a ball and I loved that they, they were doing so well. We were doing things like Rock in Rio and um, Fuji Rock Festival. Massive gigs, you know, doing Wembley Arena, selling out all the arenas. Fantastic. And we had a ball. first moment that rocked my world was the Rock in Rio gig that we did. It was Prince, George Michael, you know, the late Prince, the late George Michael, Aha, Guns N' Roses, Lisa Stansfield. It was just a really mad lineup, but it was fantastic with us being there as well. 
And I love George Michael, I have to say, and Prince. So it was amazing for me. Um, but all the gigs were fantastic. But as soon as we got there, I went to Prince's party, which was incredible. And he thought I was one of the Brazilian prostitutes. So I got to dance on stage with him for a minute, which was great. <laughs> It was just a great, great time. But I've got so many memories. Glastonbury, headlining Glastonbury in 1990, just phenomenal. And, you know, and then we did it. We did Glastonbury again. I'm hoping we do it again this year because we were supposed to do the 50th anniversary. But we did it again in 2000 and David Bowie was headlining. And um, I'm such a Bowie fan who isn't, really. But you never think, some people you never think you'll meet. And I've met a lot of people that, you know, I love them. I think they're brilliant. Um, like, Prince, I've been in, I've been in on a stage with him like, and in a room with him, but you don't look at him. I, I don't think you're allowed to look at him. We were allowed to stand at the side of the stage when Prince was on, and we weren't allowed to look anywhere near him. So I ended up just backing off. They moved the Monday's dressing room way away from David Bowie's porter cabins, a very posh porter cabin. So they put the Monday's one the other side of the stage from Bowie, but they put the Monday's girl one, they put the ladies one next to David Bowie. So my best friends who'd come with me on the tour, but I never let any of my friends or boyfriends come on the bus with me, but this time, because it was Glastonbury and it was Bowie, the only way they were going to get in was on the bus with us. So they came with me and they got to meet him. And, you know, and he stood and chatted to us. And I was, I couldn't get my words out. I've never been so starstruck in my life. And I really, really couldn't get put a sentence together. I took some pictures and he looked beautiful. He was 53 years old and he had the most gorgeous golden hair. And, but he was just talking to us as if we were just normal people, the same as him. This was just my, a couple of my mates, um, a security fella, and he was just talking to us like normal. And obviously people kept making excuses to come and see me so they could see him because I walked off to come off after Hallelujah. And David Bowie stood watching us. He'd been watching all the time. I was like, oh, my God. And he went, that was really eclectic. And I just froze. I just stood on his most surreal moment. Because as I said, if you, if you see how we look, if you see my pictures, you can see them on any of these social media sites because Bowie fans always repost these pictures I took of him. and. He just looks stunning backstage. He's, as I say, he just looked perfect. So I've seen him quite a few times uh, performing, but never like close. You know, it's like he's just in your face. It was just incredible. And yeah, I was just, I can't even tell you how I felt. It was just, it was like it was a, a dream, really. And I've never ever felt like that before. I love David Bowie so much. These other people I love and want to work with, but I think David Bowie and Marvin Gaye that passed, and George Michael actually were the people I would have loved to have worked with. Singing Colony is one of my favourite things to do. Colony, Joy Division. Um, somebody asked me what's your favourite song to sing and it's probably that one because um, it just means so much. In Curtis, when I was a kid, I used to think it was for like suicidal boys, that music. And then you grow up and you realise um, the lyrics and the melody, they're just stunning. It's just beautiful for me to sing. I mean, I do atmosphere. It did, it might do, it did very well, but for me, it's because Joy Division fans didn't lynch me. You know, they were like, it's... And then they don't when I sit when I perform it live. I get I always get a beautiful response um, because I really mean every lyric. Every it just oh it goes through you. The lyrics and the melodies they're just the best, the greatest. And um, yeah, and and the way he wrote it's just perfect for my voice. And you know I remember doing a, a sound check at the Manchester Arena. We were doing Manchester versus Cancer, and I was doing a duet with uh, Tim Booth actually. And I was singing it, and Ian's daughter was there taking photographs at the rehearsal. And um, 
it was the most surreal because she looks like him as well. It was just this most surreal but beautiful moment with um, the Philharmonic Orchestra as well. So, yeah. And those are just a few of the moments that rocked my world. Great stories from Rowetta from The Happy Mondays. Rowetta's also got a solo career. Isn't it amazing when anybody meets David Bowie, they always, like, go fall over themselves, myself included. We also had Jim McCarty from The Yardbirds and Ed Rogers, a New York singer-songwriter. Singer-songwriter? Singer-songwriter, yes. Thank you for listening. Subscribe. Come back for more. And we'll see you in the next episode of Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon Group of Podcasts. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.